Hello and welcome to your favourite underground radio broadcast, the Helios Blog, streaming live from my underground bunker. Today, we have Jordan Peterson telling us the truth about woke culture. Let's get into it. The reason she's alone is because she's difficult. Women are not accepting the bare minimum. Women fuck men they respect. All the women who say things like, I'm strong, independent, I don't need no man, like, y'all impress me. Women just gaslight each other and say what they want to hear. Pausing this rush to that. Like, what? how did this happen, and how did this happen so quickly? Well, this is partly tied up with this issue of the college, so, so here's one way into it. So now, professionals are bound by law to offer gender-affirming advice. They're bound by law. Okay, so this is what this means. If you bring your 13-year-old in to be evaluated by a physician or a psychologist, who, and maybe she has high levels of neuroticism, tilting towards depression and anxiety, and then that's making itself manifest in bodily discomfort. Now that's being shaped by this cultural fad that insists that if you feel uncomfortable in your body, it's because you're of the opposite gender. Right, and it's totally normal for kids to not feel comfortable with themselves because, again, girls are just coming into being attractive and, you know, they, they're just starting to get attention from men and they're not sure if they're good enough. And for boys, I mean, if you're a man, you're not getting anything unless you're worthy, right? If, you, if you're not good enough, you're not good enough and you get nothing. It doesn't mean that you're actually a girl in a man's body. That's what he's getting at here. That's the psychological epidemic part of it. And we can talk about that in a little bit more detail. But now you're duty-bound by law, if you're a professional, to say, oh, you think you're a boy? Yeah, absolutely. You, absolutely, 100%, you are. What can we do to facilitate that move forward? And that all got what would you call, what, pushed into the law under the guise of the elimination of conversion therapy. So, unbelievable. Now, the problem with that is, you see, if you're a therapist or a physician, you don't affirm someone's identity. That's not your job. And your job is not to deny their identity either. Your job is to help them explore their identity and hopefully to develop it. But if you affirm what it is that they already believe, then what you're doing is you're encouraging it, which actually can have negative consequences, right? Because in 2023, if you go through with these procedures, they're very bad for you, right? Like, taking, I mean, you know, even as a man, if you take testosterone, right? It's called taking steroids. Yes, you get big muscles, but... Um, what happens is your heart enlarges, your liver is heavily taxed, your kidneys are heavily taxed. What ends up happening is an early death, right? So, and and uh, there are studies telling us that birth control for women is not that good for them either, right? Uh, higher likelihood of cancer, and so on. Some women are, are not able to reproduce effectively afterwards. There's a reason you don't tamper with your hormones, right? Now imagine if it goes in the opposite direction. If it, if it crosses over, well, now you have development that is hurt doubly, 
right? Because your body's natural inclination is not to produce that much of that, uh, you know, that hormone. And, and so you're, you're going to have big problems, right? And these problems, it's possible they're irreversible. That's the problem. So if you're encouraging this, well, it's going to lead to more harm than good. Because statistically speaking, there are not a lot of people like this out there. If you, if you get what I'm saying, I'm being evasive, but you understand what I'm talking about. All right, let's continue. And so someone comes to you, maybe they have body dysmorphia. And so maybe they're anorexic. That's a form of body dysmorphia. And so the first thing you do, if you have any sense, is you note that that's stemming out of an underlying, more global proclivity to suffer from depression and anxiety. So that's the big elephant in the room, depression and anxiety. So if the trans activist types say, well, the body dysmorphic types are more likely to have suicidal thoughts, it's not because they have body dysmorphia, it's because they're prone to depression and anxiety, and depressed and anxious people are more likely to have suicidal thoughts. And maybe body dysmorphia adds a bit to that, but nobody really knows. Probably adds some. But the fundamental issue is one of depression and anxiety. So what he's saying is the treatment is worse than the cure. And in the cases of treating people with dysmorphia, with hormones, that's what, that's what it is getting at here. So now you're suffering from, you know, unspecified self-consciousness and the culture twists around to offer you a narrative. And the narrative is, oh, well, you're in the wrong body. And then the carrot is, and this is part of it gets extraordinarily pathological, is a lot of these kids who are suffering from this alienation are unpopular. Right. And so, and now they're being enticed. It's like, yeah, well, you're not unpopular. You're interestingly special. Right, exactly. So if you just take this carrot, you know, you're the opposite sex. All of a sudden, you're not a victim. You're a brave, what would you call, you're a brave seeker after your redemptive identity. And now you can be elevated. And you can be treated specially. And my God, you know, if you're an unpopular teenager, how could anything be possibly more attractive than that? Right. So the point is, you're not a loser. You're not in the right body. And that's why you're experiencing all of these negative things. Take the carrot and let us elevate you, right? It's, it's um, let me explain it in, in uh, more clear terms. You're becoming a useful idiot. And by becoming a useful idiot, you are not only furthering the, the cause, as it were, of, the, of woke ideology, but you're also becoming special. And obviously it's a trick because you're not becoming special. What you're actually doing is destroying yourself under the guise of, yep. And then what happens if you change, change your mind 10 years down the line? Well, sorry, damage to your body is done. And I mean, teenagers aren't exactly known for making the best decisions. And then you also think, well, why are teenagers gullible in that way? You know, why do they go along with the crowd? And the answer to that is... They don't have a well-developed frontal lobe. It's harder for them to say no than to say yes. They want to be accepted. It's that's what you're supposed to do when you're a teenager. Right. That's your job, right? Because first of all, you're with your parents and you're not yet a fully fledged individual. 
So what you have to do is you have to become part of the group. Right. And if you're not part of the group, well, maybe you're a stellar, you know, creative genius and you're exceptional in that manner, but more likely you're just a loser who couldn't fit in. Right. And that sucks. That's for sure. So your job when you're a teenager is to fit in, as every teenager knows, you know, and maybe not just to fit in, but, you know, to fit in in a positive way that elevates the community. But let it, we could just settle for fitting in. And so t- teenagers are wired to go along with the crowd. And then if the crowd is offering something pathological, that happens all the time. You get a suck. Indeed. Um, if you get, you know, an evil leader... Um, this has happened many, many times throughout history. Um, like, there was even human sacrifice at one point, guys, so it can get worse than, uh, than 2023. Um, but, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. And, um, in any case, if there's a pathological person at the top, then the people that follow, well, they're going to follow along those pathological lines, right? And, and I mean, this has happened also in cults and so on. So, this is why they say, if you want people to do what you want, what you do is you get the children, right? Because then you raise the next generation to be followers of your ideology. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, but uh, a new dog, well, that's a different story entirely, right? Psychological epidemic. And I knew that. I told you. I, t- I told the Senate this in 2017. And why did I know? Well, I knew the literature. That we've tracked psychological epidemics going back 300 years. 300 years. Here's some of them. Multiple personality disorder. It cycles in society. Disappears. Then there's one case. Then it spreads like mad. Then there's multiple personality disorder everywhere. Teenage girls mostly. Then people get... Huh. Interesting. Skeptical about it. And it dies. And maybe it disappears for a whole generation or two. Then a case pops up. Just does this. That's happened for 300 years. Um, Cutting was a psychological epidemic. Bulimia was a psychological epidemic. Anorexia was a psychological epidemic. The satanic daycare ritual abuse accusations that came out in the 1980s. That was a psychological epidemic. And the the rule basically is is that if if you confuse people about a fundamental element of their identity, then those who are already so confused they're barely hanging on are going to fall prey to that and all hell's going to break loose. Yeah, so weak individuals effectively. And, and when I say weak, I don't mean weak like they've chosen to be weak. Um, they might have a psychological predisposition or, you know, they might be, um, you know, low income, run down, highly stressed and so on. It's the equivalent of, uh, you know, the the very young and the very old uh, succumbing to normal, regular illnesses that, for a normal person, do nothing, basically. It's the same sort of thing, right? Uh, to a below-average person in resilience, these things take root and then have the, the ability to destroy them, right? That's what, that's what Jordan's getting at here. That's exactly what's happened in the, you know, in the trans in the trans situation but the difference between this one as opposed to the other ones like multiple personality disorder is that this one is being reinforced culturally right exactly like you you are rewarded yes yeah well the multiple personality disorder that happened there too because you'd get a lot of attention from media especially the early the people who who are the first who display the first symptoms of multiple personality disorder you know get a psychologist or a psychiatrist or 
an alienist, if you go back far enough, who reports this fascinating case of multiple personality. And, you know, there are people who are dissociative. So they kind of have multiple personalities. They're united by memory. They're usually creative people because creative people have multiple personalities. That's what makes them creative. They're not the same from day to day. You could even say they have fluid identities. You know, and so the claims of the gender types that some people have fluid identities, it's like, yeah, creative people do. They're the purple-haired types with, like, nose rings and tattoos. That's all part of trade openness. You combine that with high neuroticism, negative emotion, then you get people who are fluid in their identity who are also prone to depression and anxiety. So that's that's also crystal clear. By the way, um, guys, there is something we can extract from this. If she's got dyed hair and tattoos and a nose ring, you probably don't want to date her. Probably. There's a reason for that. Because if you do, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to get destroyed by it. So avoid. All right, okay, let's continue. And so, well, so... Look, if you're an outsider, will you want to be a dull and contemptible outsider? Or do you want to be an interesting and compelling and nouveau, exciting outsider? Well, you know, if you're a teenage girl and you've been unpopular, that's brutal, eh? Because, you know, you get tied up with those mean girls. They shun you and exclude you. It's absolutely brutal. Right, uh, there's something we can extract from this too. Men, or boys, they're violent physically. Girls and women are violent emotionally, right? So what will they do? They'll start rumors, you know, they'll talk behind your back, uh, exclude you from the group, you know, that, that sort of thing. Passive aggression as opposed to direct aggression. So that's, that's what uh, Jordan's describing here. You know, you're just living a peripheral existence. You got no friends. Everyone's contemptuous of you. You know, and maybe that's partly because you have some something that marks you out from the norm, like a tilt towards autism, because a lot of the people, it was just released with the Tavistock staff, you know, the Tavistock closed down in the UK, that was the big gender surgery performing institute in the UK. How, how was that closed down? down? What happened? Government closed it down. What a surprise. So yeah, the gov- because they knew that, they, they figured out in the UK that, wow, the rates of transgender transformation requests were skyrocketing. Interesting. <laughs> when you have a uh... Yeah, when you should the accept student, yourself. Just when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Just the way you are. Uh, activists on the education front, and now you seem to be pretty integrally involved in Governor DeSantis of Florida's, um, what would you say, strategic moves forward on the on the education reform front. And so, let's start with a bit of description about your background and how you came about doing what you are doing and what you're doing as well. Yeah, well, you know, I think my background is pr- pretty different than than a lot of the folks in the conservative world or the conservative movement. Um, you know, I, I was I grew up as a kind of a, a young man. Okay, I'm not interested in this one second. I just want to skip here. Yeah. That I hung in my bedroom and this, uh, holding the rich accountable, providing uh, yeah. for the poor. And it is a very attractive narrative. I mean, there's no getting around that. It's a magnetic narrative. And the conservative narrative is 
really one of uh, restraint, duty, obligation. And when you're 13, uh, that's not exactly something that is going to inspire you. Yeah, it's not sexy when you're 12 or 13. The, the ideology of duty and strength and honor, right? It's, it's more like, I want to do what I want to do. Um, and at the same time, I think that uh, I grew up in California, um, uh, in Sacramento, and the kind of mythology around the University of Berkeley, the free speech movement, some of those great uh, uh, student moments at the time was also something that I gravitated towards. I remember as a teenager, my friends and I would go out and and visit the campus at Berkeley and kind of be really kind of wide-eyed and amazed at the, the uh, university culture. And so those were some of the things. And then, of yeah. course, my, my family members in Italy were kind of old school European working class Marxists. And so they would provide, uh, you know, kind of long lectures when we would go back and visit, uh, you know, the thought of Lenin, the thought of Marx, the thought of Gramsci. They approached it from a, a, a theoretical basis that was, to, to me at the time, very attractive because it was. Here's the thing. It's like Animal Farm, right? If you let communism go, it becomes all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, right? It just becomes a... Basically, every single state that has become communist has failed. Um, And it's failed spectacularly. It's failed in ways that have been extremely destructive to its own people. So, Russia... um, (laughs) I mean... There's many examples. Uh, Thailand, um, obviously, even China, and so on. If you look at the amount of people that died as a result of communism, and many, many places in Eastern Europe as well, you can see that you don't want to be promoting that sort of ideology. Putting an intellectual um, uh, frame to politics. And so it engaged me mentally as well. And so... Um, it's a, it's an attractive. Right, so it was your first introduction to political theory, really. Well, so the yeah. other thing we could point out too is that there is a very real issue at stake here. A couple of very real issues. We're going to give the left its due. So the first issue is the the pervasive reality of the unequal distribution of both talent and wealth. Yup. So life works by the Pareto distribution, right? It's the it's the so called the 20 rule, right? So the idea is 20% of the people have 80% of the wealth, 20% of the people have 80% of the women, 20% of the people have 80% of the talent, and so on. And uh, 20% of the people get rewarded more than, than the bottom 80%. And that is the nature of the world, and it actually, it actually becomes even more extreme as you go higher. So, that's that. And so, Marx famously noted that capital tended to accumulate in the hands of fewer and fewer people as time went on. Now, the the cataclysmic mistake that Marx made, one of many, was to assume that there was something unique about capitalism in the production of inequality. And there's much... Indeed, and even in communism, it, it produces the same thing. Who does the Communist Party reward? Well, only the top right? It's not like the average farmer stops being a farmer and is now an equal, wonderful individual. No, they keep being a farmer and they keep doing the same thing, right? It's, it basically, it just changes who's in power, but it doesn't change the dynamics of 
power and wealth and influence. It doesn't, it doesn't change those things. Those things remain the same. Much more thorough work done now on all sorts of theoretical fronts, ranging from physics to e- economics, demonstrating that that proclivity of resource, let's say, um, or even substance for that matter, to be unequally distributed is extremely pervasive. And mm-hmm. so, for example, it is the case that most of the world's capital is in the hands of a relatively few people. Yep. But it's also the case that most of the world's water thro- flows through a very small number of rivers. Exactly. And that most of the world's population lives in a very small number of cities. And that most pl- mo- very few planets have almost all the planetary mass. And that also applies to stars. It applies and to so your blood yeah. vessel vessels as well. A very small proportion of your blood vessels have the largest volume of flow. It's the Pareto, the Pareto principle is what Jordan is describing here. So, there you go. That's called a Pareto distribution, and Pareto distributions tend to characterize a certain proportion of natural systems. And so this proclivity for inequality to emerge is real, and the danger that capital will accumulate in the hands of a very small number of people is also real, but but number one, it can't it can't be attributed to capitalism because every economic system that humans have ever uh, employed produces a Pareto distribution. Now, but right. the problem there exactly. is, is that if every system produces it, and so destroying the old system in favor of a new system will not do anything to the Pareto distribution and to power dynamics, other than shift around who is in the power position. But it doesn't mean that the power positions will disappear, that the power positions will cease to exist, that will create like a beautiful, perfect utopia where nothing is wrong. If you're a young person and maybe you're looking for a romantic adventure and you see inequality, it's going to grate on you emotionally because who the hell is happy about the fact that there are disenfranchised street people and, and then also people who are even perhaps... You know, with a street person, you might say, well, you've made some bad life choices, but, you know, what do you say about poverty-stricken children, especially when they're poverty-stricken in the face of wealth? And so the idea that you're fighting on behalf of the oppressed is a pretty attractive proposition for a young person, even if they're not ideologically adult, right? And it's it's also a, a reality that makes conservatives guilty when they're faced with the moral onslaught of leftist activists because, right. well, inequality is a painful reality. And the truth of the matter is we don't know, we really don't know what to do about it. It's a very difficult problem to solve. And it's, it's a complex, the solutions are complex. But then, you know, you can be Che Guevara and you can have a nice flag in your bedroom and your relatives can tell you that you are a young hero in training. And like, that is a lot more attractive emotionally than as you pointed out, the message of restraint, duty, and obligation, which is kind of the last thing a 13-year-old wants to hear when he's trying to make his adventurous way out in the world. That's right. (laughs) Exactly. This is a very big problem. 
Yeah, and, and I'll tell you kind of how my views changed. And really my views changed significantly when I spent uh, five years actually working on a documentary for PBS, uh, looking at three forgotten American cities, Youngstown, Ohio, Memphis, Tennessee, and Stockton, California. I followed these families in, in some of the poorest zip codes in the country, a white neighborhood, a predominantly black neighborhood, and a predominantly Latino and mixed race neighborhood over the course of a few years and really trying to understand this question. What is driving inequality? What does inequality look like? What does the phenomenon uh, reveal about itself? And the answer was actually really my political turning point, the completion of my political mm. education. And it's, it's looking at it and saying, hey, wait a minute. Uh, it, it, it's not just a simple economic story. It's not a story of elites, kind of greed. It's not a story of that kind of left-wing ideology. And in fact, the fundamental human experience of inequality in America, in a kind of advanced industrial country, um, is one that actually is a complex social story. You have broken families. And in one of the neighborhoods, for example, 92% of the families were single-parent homes. Uh, yeah, if you have single-parent homes, then you're not going to have a stable family. No stable family, no stable children. No stable children, they're not going to get up. An education, they're not going to get a job. They're not going to get the skills and abilities they need to succeed in the world. So so there were no fathers in the home uh, almost anywhere in the whole zip code. Um, mm -hmm. you, you look at uh, the social pathologies, um, you know, for, from, from depression, anxiety, to drug addiction, alcoholism. Um, and then you look at the collapse of community institutions. So those mediating uh, social institutions that once provided a structure, a sense of meaning, a sense of restraint, a sense of direction, they've all been evaporated. And all you get is the individual and the state and the ultimate irony that I discovered was that in a place like Memphis, they're spending, I, I believe, something like $3 billion a year on means-tested anti-poverty programs for a small population, something around $30,000 per family per year, so uh, enough to have a medi median standard of living, and yet you have a complete social disaster through and through. And so what that taught me was... Yeah, because if you reward people for being in a broken home, more broken homes will be created. That's the implication there. And uh, that's what Kevin Samuels talks about on his show. Right? Rest in peace. Alright, we're going to end the video there. Hit the like, hit the sub, hit all for notifications, drop me a donation, like Hunter M, Adrian Artomo, and Bobby, shout out to you, most recent Patreon subscriber, thank you. Buy my books at bit.ly slash books. Uh, shout out to Curry Kid, most recent purchase of Strategist Guide to Deduction. Thank you. And uh, guys, thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. And I will see you next time.